All right, let's begin with prayer. Join with me in prayer. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for the revelation of your grace and mercy in welcoming us to yourself. And we pray that you would continue to show us this favor by guiding us in, you, in the truth, in the truth you have revealed to us in your word, that we might uh, study scripture and understand it, that your spirit would work with your word, that we might know how to love and to serve you, for you are our Savior and our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are, well, we're on chapter 23 today of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and if you're using the hymnal, that will be on page 862 of the Civil Magistrate. Last week we looked at oaths and vows, which followed on uh, worship, Um, but the Bible also has things to say about the civil magistrate and our uh, the duty of the civil magistrate and our duty towards the civil magistrate. And uh, so there's a chapter on that here in our Confession of Faith. Now, I accidentally left my notes at home, so if it's not quite as smooth as normal, that's why. But fortunately, I have thought about this before, so uh, we will follow along in the Confession of Faith, um, which sets this out uh, well. So I'll begin with Article 1 of the civil magistrate. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good, and to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Uh, This sets out God's Uh, ordinance of civil government, how God has instituted uh, the civil magistrate and armed with him with certain power for certain ends and certain duties that lead to those ends. Um, It begins, though, by asserting that God is the supreme Lord and King of all the world. There is no one unaccountable to God. Uh, God is sovereign over all, uh, over church, over state, over family, over those who are low and high, um, and all uh, true authority, you know, comes from him. And uh, all of the, uh, the civil magistrate's authority, uh, very clearly in Scripture, is of God. And this is what Romans 13, verses 1 through 4, as well as 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. And since Romans 13 in particular is going to be a pretty essential passage uh, to this whole chapter. Let me go ahead and read uh, the first four verses, at least, of chapter 13. There, Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, 
an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so we have the uh, doctrine that we saw in the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, stated here in Romans 14. Uh, Those governing authorities that exist have been instituted by God. And why has he instituted them? Well, they're a minister of God or an officer of God, a servant of God. They are, therefore, uh, for the glory of God, uh, they bear his authority. um, And like all things, uh, ought to glorify God. And particularly how they do that is by carrying out this task for your good, uh, for, for the public good, for the good of those who are under their charge. Um, that's kind of the state motto of Missouri, let the, the good of the people be the supreme law. It might not be you know, perfect, we might want to add unto God's glory or something like that, but it is in the, the end uh, for which civil government is instituted. It's for your good, particularly the good of those who are law-abiding, um, the good of the, the commonwealth. And for that end, they are given the power of the sword, the power of life and death, uh, the power of, of, of punishment, of uh, coercion, and uh, has that power symbolized by a sword, which, of course, in Rome was not just a symbol, um, that's in fact how Paul, it said, would be executed. But uh, it was the authority that they had. And what was the civil government supposed to do with it? Uh, well, if you do wrong, be afraid. He doesn't just carry it as a symbol. Uh, there, there is a judgment that he carries out. He's an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You know, for you... Personally, just the chapter previous, he had said, don't take vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord's. Um, But then how does one way that the Lord carries out that vengeance is through the authorities that he has appointed. And uh, this serves the common good as it uh, restrains evil in society, uh, as it Uh, teaches the people to do what is right, and as it protects the innocent from those who do wrong and upholds God's justice in society. And so it's for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Of course, governments pass laws, we'll get to that here in the next article, that guide the the use of that sword, um, and those who break those laws are, are punished. Um, the sword here being used kind of for the, the uh, extremity of, of its, it's not all that the civil government can do. There's, you know, restitution that could be paid or, you know, other punishments uh, that would, could be meted out. But that, of course, is kind of the ultimate one uh, of life and death. Any questions here on the first article on the institution of civil government? Right, right. I mean, there's, there's um, a lack of fear for authority generally, which they might learn first in the home and, and then use the same approach in the civil government. And uh, yeah, the, the use of the sword of, of capital punishment is very, very, very limited in our government today. Whereas it's kind of the first thing explicitly given in uh, Genesis 9, you know, he who sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. 
uh, is kind of the, uh, the fundamental duty or one of the most basic duties of civil government to, to vindicate the image of God. Let's go to the second article. <clears throat> it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto in the managing whereof as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. So for that end, they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasion. So first of all, Christians can serve as civil magistrates. Now, why would they have to assert that? Would anyone dispute that? The Anabaptists. The Anabaptists, right. There were real people that, I mean, there still are some people, there are not a lot of pure Anabaptists uh, anymore, although you get kind of an Anabaptist feel sometimes where Christians are like, well, we don't want to really be involved with the world out there, or be involved with politics or government. That's kind of for unbelievers to take care of. Uh, but that literally was like the position of the Anabaptists, not just kind of a general sense, but they would say, no, you know, we should, Christians should never kill, should never wage war, should never serve as civil magistrates. Uh, that's just for those outside uh, the church to do. Uh, but, but here it's asserted it's lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate. Now, when called thereunto, you, know, you shouldn't usurp that authority. You know, there's a proper way of being called to being a civil magistrate, just as there would be for office in the church. There's a certain way of being called to that office. That was the other extreme some of the Anabaptists fell into, where they took over a town, and uh, it was, was kind of the opposite of extreme of, of revolution. Um, and that probably is why they swung back then to such a pacifist option afterwards. But, uh, but no, there's, as long as it's a, a lawful call, it's lawful to accept and execute this office. Uh, first of all, because it's an ordinance of God. He's God's minister. This is a way to serve God. Um, all, all, all lawful callings are um, ways in which we can serve God. We have examples even of Christians in pagan societies fulfilling the office of civil magistrate. Can you think of any Old, Old Testament examples of serving in countries far less Christian than our current country? Daniel and Babylon. Da- Daniel and Babylon. Joseph and Egypt. Joseph and Egypt. Yeah. Well, Abraham was kind of his own prince, but he, he did kind of combine with some other uh, leaders in the area of when he lived there. Wasn't Lot in the city gates of Sodom? Yeah, it seems like he was probably sitting as an elder or judge in, in Sodom. Um, there's also Nehemiah, who was a governor in the Persian administration, uh, Mordecai uh, as well. So you have many examples here, even when it's not a Christian society in which Christians were able to administer this office, which is instituted uh, by God uh, for, for our good. Uh, now, in what, what is their duty then? If, you're in, if you are a civil magistrate, um, there are certain goals to, to maintain piety, justice, and peace. Um, think of how Psalm 2 describes how, how kings ought to serve the Lord and submit to the Lord Jesus, the, the, the Messiah, uh, that they should worship him. Uh, think of how 
1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, while exhorting Christians to pray for civil government, also speaks, you know, if civil government is being blessed, what, what should be the result? What's the, the end which they serve? It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so you have all three of these ends here. You have peace, a peaceful and quiet life. You know, you're secure. Uh, you're, you, you have that, that freedom and, and a peaceable life. Godly, which can be word uh, piety, in other words. Then uh, dignified, which is the idea of honest, uh, of, uh, of just life uh, that may be lived uh, when kings and those who are in high positions are fulfilling their jobs. Uh, of course, the call to secure justice is called, and uh, the exhortations that the kings would give the judges in the Old Testament, you must do justice, and justice alone, don't be bribed, don't be turned aside, and, uh, do, and do favoritism, but the judgment is the Lord's that you execute. Uh, we saw then Romans 13 as well, uh, to execute God's wrath on the evildoer. Um, Psalm 82 speaks of the role of the civil magistrate. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Um, those who are weak or fatherless were often uh, unprotected. They didn't have as many people to assert their rights and more easily taken advantage of you know, by fraud or injustice by those who were uh, wicked. And so the civil magistrate was to look out for the rights of all of his people and to see that justice was done in relations between people. So piety, justice, and peace. Now, interestingly, when the Baptists made their confession of faith and really just a revised version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's interesting to see what they changed. They omitted piety from this list. So when the Americans, they, they revised the next paragraph, which we'll see on relation of church and state, but they didn't revise this paragraph where the civil magistrate ought to maintain piety as well as justice and peace. You know, so there might be disputes on how exactly should it maintain piety, but that still should be a goal of the civil government as they seek to serve God and uh, maintain order in society. And of course, they also do, ought to do so according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. Um, recognizing that some laws may need to be changed. Not all laws are wholesome, but, you know, should rule by law and not arbitrary, uh, uh, just brute use of, of power. And so for that end, now we get to war. Even in the New Testament, of course, it's indisputable in the Old Testament they could lawfully wage war. Uh, but the question with the Anabaptists was, what about in the New Testament? And even in the New Testament, they may lawfully wage uh, war, certain war, War for these ends, piety, justice, and peace, not just power and greed and wanting more stuff and more land, right? Um, for piety, justice, and peace, and also upon just and necessary occasion. Not just a necessary occasion, but also a just occasion. Not just a just occasion, but also a necessary occasion. Those are both important. Uh, it's, it's not the first thing that you do when there's a problem and you want a just cause before one goes to war. Um, but when 
the Gospels preached in the New Testament, it goes to kings, it goes to centurions, it goes to soldiers, and they're not told to resign their position. Uh, their job was soldiering, um, but they're told to, to not defraud others, to not act wickedly, but they continue to serve as soldiers in the army of Rome. Cornelius was a picture of a, a pious man uh, who received the gospel and was a soldier in uh, even in authority in the army. And he's not the only centurion that's portrayed in a positive light in the New Testament. Um, and so, uh, there, on just occasions, there continues to be the uh, appropriateness of using the sword. Because what is the power that God has given the civil magistrate, the sword, for uh, fixing injustice? And that's true whether it's a criminal within your society or whether it's a criminal nation that's attacking your society. Uh, it's the same uh, fundamental power uh, just being exercised in different ways. All right, any questions on the second article? Right. So that get, does get more complicated, and there's you know, debates within just war theory. Who's responsible for what? Um, I think at least the emphasis is those who are declaring war are primarily responsible for just cause, and those who are doing the warfare are primarily responsible for just implementation of the war. Because both of those are important. You have to both have just cause as well as then execute, you know, proceed in the war justly. You could have a just cause and then be unjust in the way you prosecute the war. Um, and so the soldier doesn't always have all the details of, of, that the people higher up have with respect to is this a just cause or not. Um, and so there is uh, some delegation of authority. Who's res- where's the buck stop? Who's responsible? But that said, I won't, don't want to say that soldiers are completely uh, just do whatever you're told because we could think of examples where it would be very clear where what they're doing is wrong. Think of uh, Nazis who are working in concentration camps or something like that, um, where uh, it would be plain that, oh, this is wrong. I should do something about this um, and, and reject an unjust command that's being given. So that's, that's my first stab at it, at least. Yes? Yes, yeah. So even not just with respect to war, but just generally when, the, when, there's, uh, when you're told to do something that's wrong, you know, on the one hand as an individual, if you're told to sin, you should not do that thing. Uh, so if uh, Daniel's told to stop praying to God, he should still pray to God. Um, but there's also uh, times where can the civil government be resisted and when that question is being asked, uh, it should still be done under civil government or civil authority, still under authority, not just a private individual. But that's where lesser magistrate has a responsibility to main justice, even when it's another person in the government who is doing that injustice to maintain the rights of his people. Uh, and so we could think of times of lawful interposition, such as in the American Revolution, 
where that takes place. And then, of course, you also have to apply just war theory to that as well. Like, is this even winnable? You know, is, uh, or is there uh, a just and necessary cause to take this stand? Because usually that ends, it doesn't always, but it could at, at lead to fighting when Sun's interposition is exercised. Uh, and we could go into bibl- biblical examples of what that looks like, like with Queen Athaliah uh, and what the, the people and the commanders do uh, in response to her usurpation and tyranny in Israel or Judah. Any questions on that? Like when they tried overthrowing Hitler uh, in Germany, there was an attempt to right away you know, have another government in, in place it wasn't going to be just someone, some one, one German deciding, I'm going to take out the government, but they were going to do so with lower, lesser magistrates to try to take them out, replace them. Unfortunately, it didn't work, but that was, that was the goal. All right, let's go on to Article 3 then. And I, I'll, just one more note on that, I guess. It's not really talked about here in the Confession, but when the Confession was being written, it was in the midst of a war, the English Civil War, when they were fighting the forces of the king. And so Samuel Rutherford wrote his book, Lex Rex, while he was a member or a commissioner to this assembly, which would answer these questions in a lot more detail than what I'm giving here. Uh, but um, at that point, they weren't even trying to overthrow the king. They were simply trying to resist uh, unlawful use of authority by the king, uh, execu- you know, by his officers and the like. Uh, so they often were not the ones wanting to kill the king. Uh, that was the more radical independence that wanted to go that far. Um, all right, so number three is probably, th- it's, it quickly, it, it's the one that had the most significant revision uh, to it uh, compared to the original one and the one that's here part of the American revision. It was actually in Philadelphia while the U.S. Constitution was being written that the Senate of New York and Philadelphia, which was like the highest court of the Presbyterian Church at the time, uh, was meeting and uh, uh, proposing these amendments uh, with John Witherspoon being a significant member of that assembly who had earlier signed the Declaration of Independence. And uh, there was uh, not only had a lot of people already taken exception to the original article, uh, already was not very popular, uh, but they also wanted to, to take care of the suspicion that other people had about the Presbyterians, that the Presbyterians had supported the American Revolution so they could replace the Anglican Church as the state church. Uh, there was kind of this jealousy of, this, uh, of the Presbyterians, especially if they linked up with the Congregationalists, uh, that they would kind of turn the tables on everyone else now and and take power. Now, that seems kind of odd now because there's a lot less Presbyterians than other people today, but those were the days. <laughs> and uh, the, the original uh, paragraph said this, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, yet he hath authority and it is duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed, 
for the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods to be present at them and to provide that whatever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. Um, so, hundred years later, especially after Presbyterians, Presbyterians had often been the minority in, in governments like England, Ireland, and America, um, they had come to the idea, conclusion that this gave too much power to the civil government, more than was warranted by scripture. And so what they adopted uh, is what is here now, which I'll go ahead and read, uh, which is longer, is a little wordy. Uh, it's still trying to preserve that the civil government does have a duty toward the church to protect it, yet without usurping its jurisdiction or interfering with its internal affairs. So it says, the civil, magistrate, or civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such manner that all ecclesiastical persons whatever shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And, as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their profession and belief. It is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity to offer any indignity, violence, abuse or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. I have a lot of words. Uh, really wanting to, to, uh, to cover this. It's uh, a difficult topic, church and state. How do they relate that the church and state have struggled with over the centuries, ever since there were both. And um, this is also pretty unique to the American situation, because it mentions the only place that mentions denominations in the confession of faith, because uh, they didn't really exist as we understand them uh, back when this was originally being written in England. So it's kind of contextualized to our situation, uh, but it is opposing the establishment of one denomination by the support of the civil government over the rest. Um, that the duty that the civil government has is to the Church of Jesus Christ without discrimination. And it's not to, uh, as the original one said, they shouldn't usurp the administration of word and sacraments or the keys of the kingdom. Church discipline is in the power of the church. Uh, unlike what a lot of people in the day of the Westminster Confession were saying is that the, the state should have the final say in church discipline. Calvin had to struggle against that in Geneva, and he won. Busser had to struggle against the city council of Strasbourg, and he lost. The parliamentarians in the Westminster Confession went head-to-head -head on this, and they didn't really have enough time to sort it out in the end. Uh, but they, they asserted this, that church discipline belongs to the church. Um, but this goes on to say, or interfere in matters of faith. The civil government should not do that. Matters of faith, especially referring to, to doctrine. In other words, uh, that point about the civil magistrate seeing, providing that whatever is transacted in church councils be according to the mind of God, that's kind of like interfering in matters of, of faith. Um, it, it should not uh, interfere with the internal work of the church, but 
Scripture does say that the civil magistrate is a nursing father uh, of the church. And we find that in the prophecies of Isaiah, uh, multiple places. And I don't have my... Let's see if it has the Scripture references here. I don't have them from my notes, but Isaiah 49, for example, verse 23, speaking of the, the people of God. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Similar language in Isaiah 60, where it talks about the nations and the kings coming to the people of God. Foreigners shall build your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. Uh, Verse 12, for the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly, utterly laid to waste. And then verse 16, you shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. Kind of a mixed metaphor there, but you get the idea. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. In other words, you'll benefit from the protection of the powerful ones of the earth. I'm going to do this. And we see a kind of a type of this in the return to the land where the kings of Persia gave their protection and resources to the rebuilding of the temple and its walls. But a lot of these prophecies are not just looking to that, but also to the New Testament, uh, the glory of the church to come with Christ, uh, that would also have this uh, protection. Uh, And so the civil government should preserve the liberty of the church, uh, make sure that that pastors and ecclesiastical persons shall be able to discharge their sacred functions without violence or danger, um, and uh, countenance and maintain the church, as the larger catechism says. Um, our society has done this in various ways in the past, with like tax exemption for churches or Sabbath laws, laws against disturbance of churches. Um, some of these still exist, some of them not so much anymore. Also, it's generally the duty to protect the person and good name of their people. So the civil government should not allow the Presbyterians to tar and feather the local Episcopalian minister, as sometimes happened in the backwoods of Virginia. Um, that uh, you should uh, not you know, spray degrading de- graffiti on another house of worship you know, or, or try to go into the local Catholic church and disrupt the service. And uh, you know, the, the civil government has a general duty to, to keep order and peace and justice Uh, in society. I know we're kind of running out of time, so let me go on to the last article. It is the duty of of people to pray for magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for conscience sake. Infidelity or difference in religion does not make void the magistrates' just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to them from which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted, much less hath the Pope any power or jurisdiction over them in their dominions or over any of their people, and least of all to deprive them of their dominions or lives if he shall judge them to be heretics or upon any other pretense whatsoever. So, uh, somewhat briefly here, you should pray for civil magistrates. Uh, We do that sometimes in church, but you should also personally do this. Paul says that to Timothy. Honor their persons, uh, just as David honored the person of King Saul. Didn't want to 
reach out his hand to harm him and even felt guilty about cutting off a piece of his clothes and, and repented of that and then bowed down to Saul. It's appropriate to show outward signs of respect to those who are civil magistrates. We might not do a lot of bowing today, at least in the same way they did, but we can have other gestures that show honor and respect. Interestingly, the Baptist left that one out. I don't know if that was intentional or not. They kind of rewrote this paragraph. Um, to pay them tribute or other dues, that one also gets left out of the London Baptist Confession, but I think they would assert that. You know, that we, we should pay taxes to whom taxes are due. Give to Z- Caesar uh, what, is due, what is Caesar's. Uh, to obey their lawful commands, be subject to their authority for conscience sake. That's what Paul says in Romans 13. Not just because you fear judgment, but because it's your duty. Uh, that you should be under, subject to, uh, the civil magistrate. And it doesn't matter if he's a pagan. I mean, Nero was a pagan when Paul wrote those words in Romans 13. Now, interestingly, this background to this is that the Pope had said, uh, I'm, you know, he excommunicated Queen Elizabeth and, and uh, released all her subjects from authority to her and kind of was encouraging assassination attempts. Uh, and so this thing actually happened, what it's talking about here, that, no, even if the king is a heretic, uh, you still have this civil responsibility to them. And uh, church, author- church ecclesiastical persons, like pastors, for example, are not exempt from the civil magistrate. The Church of Rome said they are, that they should only be judged in church courts, uh, not by the civil authorities. But... Um, Paul was willing to be tried by Caesar. He said, this is where I ought to be. Uh, It did not claim exemption from their civil authority, um, although there was also, in addition to that, a church authority. And the Pope does not have any jurisdiction in England or America or any other realm, uh, much less any civil authority at all, uh, because God did not give civil authority, the power of the sword, uh, to the church. He gave them uh, spiritual authority weapons like the word and sacrament and the keys of the kingdom. All right. So with that, we'll finish this chapter on the civil magistrate. A lot of uh, food for thought. Uh, We could go uh, deeper into this subject, uh, but that's an overview of uh, biblical doctrine of the civil magistrate. Next up will come marriage and divorce. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, we thank you for appointing your ordinances for our good, not only the ordinances in your church, but also the natural ordinances of marriage and of civil magistrate. We pray that you would direct our rulers and lawmakers and judges to... Uh, to do their duty, uh, to do it well, to do it to your glory, uh, to do so righteously, uh, that we might enjoy uh, peace and live quiet lives of, of piety and honesty. We pray that you would uh, give us good leaders in our elections, that you would uh, give courage and steadfastness to those who seek to do good in civil government. Uh, we pray that you would Use it to protect your church and its freedom, that it might carry out its sacred task. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.